Stoveleg Media, igniting conversation. I'm Trisden. And I'm Ray. What we hope to do here is find a little bit of middle ground on some of these extremely polarizing social and political issues. Welcome everybody to Extreme Common Sense. What's up, Ray? How's it going? Hey, Tristan. Good to see you this morning. Morning. This may be our <laughs> earliest podcast. Yeah, I'm interested to see how this turns out because usually we're kind of an evening crew and uh, and today we're getting it done bright and early at the, at the before double digit numbers on the clock. <laughs> Do you fancy yourself a morning guy? I guess we'll find out today. Dude, not at all. Like, not even the slightest <laughs> bit close to a morning person. I do feel better. I think most people, you feel better when you get up early. And not that this is super early, but you do feel good in the morning. But, yeah, usually I'm a sleeper. Yeah, nothing wrong with sleep. How about you? You uh, you early guy? Well, it's funny. Back in the radio days, yeah, you know, I was up early and I, I missed, used to make the joke I didn't see Leno or Letterman for ten years, and now with this new job, I don't. We don't open the doors until noon. I usually get here about ten. I can stay up until one and sleep till eight thirty. Nice. I guess you adjust to whatever. Yeah, no but, doubt uh, about it. We got a cool, uh, a cool topic today. We've, we've got a few shows without a guest. Looking forward to uh, to talking to Jay. You want to tell folks. Um, what we're you know we, we've we've covered guns on this uh, podcast, Tristan. We've covered abortion. Today we're going to talk some drug use. Yeah, I think so. Drug use, addiction, uh, pharmacies, uh, sort of the whole run the gambit of sort of how um, addiction affects people, maybe, and um, and and how maybe the the diagnoses and the the medicines we treat some mental illness with sort of affects people and could lead maybe to to these addiction issues. But we we definitely have a. A guy who's an expert on the topic, Jay Schiffman, coming in. He's a, a release, recently released an article uh, in Yes Magazine. He's a blogger in Philadelphia. And, I, you know, I hate these intros because I always feel like I'm going to say, like, the wrong, everything is incorrect, so they'll always just correct me when they come on. But uh, super smart young man. Uh, I call him young, but I assume he's younger than me. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's got, got a lot to say. I think I uh, did a TED, TEDx talk uh, about his situation so yeah oh, just really? a, wow that's really yeah, impressive yeah fascinating fascinating guy so yeah so it should be a really cool show i mean uh i i don't know if i've talked about it on the show much but you know my mom was an alcoholic um you know my dad suffered from mental illness so uh certainly some addiction issues that i've seen for most of my life and uh yeah i mean it's it's a lot a lot to talk about well I mean, in a certain way, it's almost like cancer. There's not a family not affected. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, I mean, it's just so prevalent. Right. And these days, I mean, uh, with, um, you know, I, I guess they call it the opioid epidemic, but certainly with um, in the last 10, 15 years, it just feels like, you know, you don't know many grandparents, certainly in this area, that aren't raising, you know, their, their child's kids from, you know, addiction issues. 
That's funny, Trisden, the opioid epidemic. I was working for your boss still back in probably 2002 when oxycodone came on the market, Purdue Pharma up in Connecticut, and they were calling every radio station across the country, including a little podunk station like ours, to talk about how this was the next great thing. All of America's pain was going to be relieved and everybody was going to be feeling great. Fast forward about 10 years, and I'm sure Jay can speak to this, and it was nothing but... It, it was just well that, that whole family wound up you, you know that Connecticut family they wound up in a lawsuit and it was just all so overblown and so um, overhyped and, and and it was just one more pharmaceutical now I, I guess a part of it was it was intended as time release and some of the users w- would would smash them and snort it all and so on and so forth that was their defense but nonetheless this was pushed on America at a rapid rate by a lot of money and you know we're now we're where we're at and doctors were certainly overprescribed. Yeah. Indeed. And, and Ray, I'm going to say something to you that you've never heard maybe in your entire life. I need you to be just a little bit louder. Okay. <laughs> you are right about your, that. Your levels, your levels are just a touch lower, uh, I think, than they should be. Okay. So, a and, and- little, little insight. An insight for our listeners, I uh, mentioned uh, Troy, who's such a phenomenal guy in, in producing everything we do, is uh, is not available today. So this is all uh, my attempt to do what he does today. Yeah, right. So, and we're doing it. Godspeed to, right, to everyone. And we're doing it over the Internet. So, no, that's cool because I want to hear from Jay anyway. So I will uh, gladly step aside and, and, and listen to what, uh, what he has to say about all this. You want to you wanna invite Jay to join us? Absolutely, man. With no further ado, let's bring in Mr. Jay Schiffman. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I'll say, Tristan, it, Hello, Jay. hi, you're doing a fantastic job producing this, Tristan. I, I'm very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> Buddy, I, I, you're now my best friend. Thank you so much. I appreciate well, that. So as somebody who both uh, hosts and produces my own show, it is a lot of juggling, and, and you're doing it expertly. You've got about three balls in the air right now, and you're keeping them up. So that's all anybody can ask of you, you know? <laughs> Man, thanks a lot. No doubt. So you, you mentioned your podcast, Jake. Tell us a little bit about Choose Your Struggle. Yeah, so I've got a couple of shows. I've got my own network called The Shameless Podcast Network. Uh, it, it hosts my show, my main show, Choose Your Struggle, a, a, a documentary show that I put out, uh, dropped about a month ago as we record this. Um, that's a 10-part series that came out, like I said, about a month ago. Uh, it's got a couple other shows from some other amazing creators on that network, again, the Shameless Podcast Network. Um, but it, it, the goal of the network is to help uh, other producers like me who are aimed at ending stigma. That's our, our main goal with our shows is to talk about topics that uh, people are quite frankly, afraid to talk about. Um, obviously, mine is drugs, addiction, uh, mental health. Um, I've got another buddy on there, a former Major League Baseball player who now runs a cannabis company. Uh, his is called Corner of the Clubhouse. Um, his is all about how, you know, baseball is is uh, sort of the, the, the issue of drugs in baseball, but not the way you think about it, right? It's the way, you know, his experience is that he was forced to take a lot of pills and drink away his pain during his playing days. So some really in- incredible shows, I think. And um, I just love the podcasting space. I'm, a, I'm an audio guy, obviously always been a big music guy and the ability now to to help uh talk about these topics and reach people in places all around the globe is it's unparalleled and and i just love this space that's awesome uh so corner of the clubhouse which i'm fascinated by now that i want to check that out who is the who's the ex-major leaguer (laughs) 
His name is Kyle Blanks. He played for over a decade uh, with Oakland, uh, San Francisco, or sorry, San Diego, uh, Texas, uh, and then I think he spent some time in the Mexican leagues. Uh, big corner outfielder and first base, uh, slugging first baseman who who unfortunately uh, had his career um, cut short and ruined a bit by injuries. So really interesting guy. Become a friend uh, has become a close friend, and and I, I learn from him constantly. And he's doing awesome work now with his company Roadrunner CBD, uh, which makes some things like healing gels and and balms and stuff like that for people. Uh, and, and Kyle's been there. He understands what the power of this kind of stuff can do. Man, that's awesome. I love what it sounds like you're trying to do is really make the world a better place, uh, you know, for folks that have suffered. And, and, you know, Lord knows, I mean, what percentage of Americans have some form of mental illness? It's got to be, you know, if, if we're talking anxiety and depression, it's got to be like 90% or something. So I think anything you can do in that space to sort of <laughs> help folks is just phenomenal. And, and doing an entire podcast network, man, God bless you. Uh, what a cool thing to do. Um, so do, do you want to... Thanks. I appreciate it. It, it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that, that, that to your point... You know, the, the things that keep me going are when I get emails, I, I, I parrot this one all the time. It was a guy in, uh, I'm, I always forget what country, I'm going to say it was Ethiopia, but it was somewhere in uh, northern Sahara, Africa. And the email was said basically, thank you for your show because we don't talk about the, these topics where I live. This is my uh, way to feel connected. I get emails like that all the time. Uh, I love it. That's what keeps me going. And, and and to your introduction from earlier that you found me through the Yes Magazine article, um, you know, that was such an awesome opportunity because I, I was talking to them about that article. They were doing an entire issue. I've got it sitting right here uh, about pleasure. And I reached out and said, look, you know, I'm a writer on this top on the topics of, of drug use in, in my space. Pleasure is a word that we don't hear that often. Would you be open to this being in the edition? He said, not only would it be open to it, that's amazing that we would love to do that. So uh, it's it's opportunities like that that just help change the narrative a little bit uh, that I'm constantly seeking out. Nice. And it's funny that you have, you know, I can see a lot of folks reaching out because you have such an important uh, topic that, that, you, that you speak about. I think most people that reach out to Ray and I, just ask us if we wouldn't mind getting a different job. So it's uh, <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, so, man, how long have you, Jay, uh, been in recovery? And tell us a little bit about your your personal story, if you'd like to. Yeah, so I've been in recovery for twelve years. Uh, I entered recovery in the spring of two thousand ten. Um, but my story is a little bit different than the one that we, we hear a lot. Mine came from a misdiagnosis in my teenage years. I, I do struggle with some mental health stuff, but my therapist at the time, and this is 20 years ago, uh, gave me the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Um, obviously, I'm making a much longer story short here. Uh, the thing is, I don't have bipolar disorder, and when you treat somebody for that very serious issue of mental health who doesn't have it uh, with very strong pharmaceutical drugs, uh, things are going to happen. I, I would call them a side effect, but unfortunately, when you don't have the, the, the disorder, they just become the effects. And um, for me, that was uh, sort of an, an inflammation of the other issues I did struggle with, uh, depression, anxiety. I have OCD, and it went out of control during this period. Um, and that led to me uh, eventually be becoming addicted to uh, at least one, if not multiple, of those drugs that I was prescribed. 
And by uh, my my twenty third birthday, I was taking more than six drugs every day. I, like I said, I was addicted to, to at least one, if not multiple. And uh, when I was uh, 20, 23 years old, I attempted suicide twice in two days. Uh, I overdosed the second time, and uh, and and I'll make this super clear because this is is changing, but it's been in the news a lot lately. Uh, when I overdosed, and and somebody that uh, loved me called nine one one, a cop showed up at my door. Uh, it was not an ambulance. And uh, that that officer responded by putting me into handcuffs, leading me out my front door. And the last thing I remember before I blacked out and into full blown overdose was he threw me in the back seat, but missed and slammed my head off the side of his cop car. And I crumpled. Um, and luckily for me, he, he drove me to the hospital uh, and I spent that night handcuffed to a bed at, at a hospital in Cincinnati, where I'm from. And uh, then spent the next three weeks in a lockdown unit. You know, the one, the kind you see on TV, no shoelaces, uh, all you know, showering with the door open, that kind of stuff. And the following three months at a, a long-term care facility, what we used to call a mental institution, before realizing there that the issue was not bipolar disorder because I got to meet some really beautiful, incredible people with bipolar disorder uh, and also a couple other people who, who were struggling with addiction. And I went, hey, now that looks familiar uh, and ended up getting off all the, the prescription pills uh, by going through what's called step down detox. Uh, that is the opposite of cold turkey. Uh, here's my, my PSA for this is that cold turkey will kill you if you are not careful. Uh, do not. Do not, do not go cold turkey uh, without the the help of a, of a doctor because it will kill you. I know too many people who have lost their lives uh, trying to go cold turkey. And I went through step down. It took me almost four months to get off of everything. Uh, and in the spring of 2010, that's when I started rebuilding my health and rebuilding my life. Man, that's, a, that's an amazing story, Jay. And I'm assuming that you uh, bring up that an uh, antidote about the police officer to make the point that they were looking at you as a criminal. Yes. Uh, so two points. Yes, that's number one is that, you know, because it, here's what's crazy. I was on all the medications that I was addicted to. The, the one that I was and all the ones that I was misusing were all prescribed to me. But that officer didn't care. I was an overdose, which made me a drug, you know, to in his eyes, a quote unquote junkie. Yeah. And he treated me as such. Uh, and the other sort of side to that is that, unfortunately, that, you know, that story, my my experience is not unique. Uh, there was not just a mix up that day. I mean, that is what happens with our 911 system. As I said, my preface that is it is changing slowly, but we are fighting tooth and nail for mental health and other forms of health uh, to be the sort of assumption when someone calls 911 instead of sending. I mean, there was no reason that an officer with a gun had to come and put me in handcuffs as I was overdosing, right? So uh, that is changing, but it's super slow, and, and there are a lot of people like myself who are fighting for that to, to go quicker. Well, and that's one of the things that sort of, you know, the, the defund the police movement got very, very demonized. But I think a big part of what defund the police really wanted to do was not, of course, to abolish the police, but to have sort of the correct people responding to the correct issues. So you didn't have an untrained cop that, that doesn't know about mental illness, for example, to show up on a scene that just doesn't really know and isn't trained to handle that. So, um, so defund the police 
really, I think, uh, you know, again, we talk a lot about on the show the Democrats, our, our team, sort of does a really bad job in naming things. They do a bad job uh, in sort of coming up with these three-word slogans that nobody can sort of kill like uh, the Republicans are so good at. But th- this sounds like a perfect situation of something that, that, you know, that obviously should not have been a cop and should have been somebody that was trained to, to come help as opposed to, you know, what cops are trained for. That's, that's a, a perfect point, and, and sort of to put a cherry on it, I do a lot of work in, in, here in my, my chosen city of Philadelphia with the drug-using community, and not long ago, I was out in an area called Kensington that, that listeners may know about because it's been jokingly called Hamsterdam after the, the open-air drug market, the free zone, and the wire, um, and we were out working. I, I work with a group in that area, and we were out working one day, and a man started to overdose. Um, now this happens not infrequently and all of us carry Narcan and all of us are trained in CPR and how to, to reverse overdoses. But we, we go running over and a group of police officers beat us to it and, uh, they don't carry Narcan. Um, and, and their response to this gentleman overdosing was to start literally physically beating on him, uh, trying to beat him out of overdose. And we were yelling, like, what are you doing? Like, we have Narcan, please let us intervene. And they wouldn't let us intervene. And it was a really traumatic scene. Now, luckily, uh, eventually someone got through to this cop. It wasn't us, but somebody else arrived with Narcan and the officers allowed them to use it. And the guy was okay. But I talked to the, the leader of the organization that I work for. And I said, honestly, what the hell? What the hell was that? And she said, look, we've met with the local um, you know, captain, sergeant, whatever the rank is. The thing is, the way the police contracts are written, they have the choice to to be trained in Narcan or not. And as I'm sure you're not that surprised, it's under 20% who agree to be trained. And so then it's under 20% who carry Narcan. And to your, your point about defund the police, our response to that is, if you won't do it, let us do this, right? But they won't do it. So, Jay, is that all part of the stigma you talk about, just that stigma of a drug user, that the uh, uh, police officer's training is uh, s- certainly with the older officers, and it may change, as, as you mentioned, going forward, but they're looking at this as a criminal problem, not a mental health problem. I think that's a really excellent point, is that uh, you know people who say well, we have to train our way out of this uh, unfortunately, you're still trying to train people out of something that is a, a deeply held societal belief, yeah. and that is that drug users are just criminals. Right. And, you know, you're seeing this change. Uh, again, it's very slow. And and I honestly, to, to a point that you made earlier, Ray, when you were talking about what is called the, the, um, uh, uh, the opioid crisis, which people like me like to actually call the overdose crisis, because unfortunately... Uh, uh, the the opioids are merely. Uh, I mean, it, there's a, actually a guy by the name of Carl Hart, one of my heroes in the drug policy space. Uh, he's the the head of psychology at Columbia, and he's done the date that the the research that shows that opioids are mo- maybe forty percent of the of the overdose, but because they get all the news coverage that's why people call this the opioid crisis it's very similar to the, to the quote-unquote crack epidemic back in the 80s where there really wasn't a rise in crack but there was a a a you know a, a, a 
um, a, a sort of an explosion of news coverage. And so really what we're seeing is more of an o a overdose crisis. There are way too many people overdosing. Right. But the, the, the point that I was I was trying to make is that instead of, you know, um, uh, seeing people as as this sort of just they chose to struggle with addiction BS that people did for a long time, we're seeing this narrative change because so many people now know, oh, this was my nephew who got prescribed Percocet or, oh, this is my, you know, whatever the case is. And that's helping change the, the narrative. Well, there's that, Jay. And there's also the hypocrisy of people who are going to sit just judgment on a quote-unquote drug user who go to the bar and knock back a couple of beers and maybe a bourbon or two, or they need their nicotine or even their coffee in the morning or their uh, Tylenol at night to get a better night's sleep. I mean, you know, the average American um, a medicine cabinet in their bathroom is pretty well stocked, right? So we all have, you know, no, no one is, virtually no one is immune. No, that's that's exactly right, and and I, I appreciate that you mentioning uh, alcohol and nicotine. When I did my TED talk last year, um, I, I had a slide up on the screen, and I was trying to help people understand that if we just went off of health, if we just outlawed drugs because of their health impacts, the top two in terms of causing negative health impacts to people in our country are nicotine and alcohol. Right. And it's so much more than all of these drugs that we're talking about, all the heroines, all the everything, that I couldn't fit them on the same slide because nicotine ruined the slide. You could not see all the other drugs because nicotine was so far off of the top and alcohol was about halfway up there, right? And so... It, it, once you can see that, you go, oh, all right, so we're not talking just about health, because if we were, those two things would be illegal. So it helps you start rethinking this. And, and again, you know, my my sort of uh, uh, nerding out here uh, uh, expertise is on the history of the war on drugs. And you can take these, these through lines all the way back to the late 1800s, early 1900s in showing why particular drugs are outlawed and other ones aren't. And it's, it's very fascinating to me, but also very... Very sad. So, uh, Jay, if you had a, a magic wand, like, what do you do in America to uh, to sort of fix what you see as, as the problem? Well, I think so. This is this is where I get sort of torn because a big part of me thinks that we should. Uh, take the way that 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 you know we have seen um, legalization and decriminalization uh, for cannabis as an example, right? I mean, you know, there were scare tactics for a long time. I mean, I'm I'm 36. I was arrested in the early 2000s and called a junkie for using weed and all this stuff. But the the fact is that it's now legal in far more states than it's illegal. And we're not seeing all of these uh, horror stories that they told us were going to happen come to pass, right? We're not seeing 10-year-olds uh, all over the country all of a sudden smoking all this kind of stuff. We're not seeing, quote-unquote, overdoses, which is not possible with cannabis. I mean, there's, there's, we're not, are there negatives to it? Of course there is, but there's negatives to, to everything. And so I love this example because it shows that, you know, with the right regulation, this stuff can work. And if you need to look at bad regulation, just look at alcohol. I mean, we, we don't do a good job of policing this, not uh, not to, to use that term, but uh, it, 
you know, yes, bars and and are are safer than obviously just drinking on the street. But we have so many drunk driving accidents every year. We have too many kids who are who are uh, experimenting with alcohol in an unsafe way. And if if we could make if we could double down on the deregulation around alcohol and be a little bit safer with that, I think it would help people realize that as long as our government does what they're supposed to be doing, uh, a lot of these negatives would not come to pass. And so that's sort of my ideal future is that we treat all of these substances the way we do cannabis, uh, more like cannabis than alcohol, to be frank. And we do a better job of making sure they stay out of the hands of the people who shouldn't have them. And for everybody else, that we're allowed to live our lives. It's it's really sad to me that the arguments that we use to, to you know keep people from using drugs go out the window when we're talking about, oh, I don't know, a semi-automatic rifle or something. And, Jay, I think uh, a, a great point that you make is um, everything is always negative and i i mean i guess i understand the the logic behind it always negative when we talk about drugs but i don't think we talk at all because it's such a um impolite topic i i don't know if that's the right phrase but what i'm trying to get to is there is a lot of enjoyment that comes from i guess what we would term recreational, quote unquote, recreational drug use. I, you know, I was born in '60, Jay. I'm a child of the '70s. I mean, you know, Dennis Miller used to have a joke, um, about, uh, give or take my age, about you know, you remember the kids in high school that didn't get high; they were just out. You know, in, in 1978 and '79, it was just a bonding ritual. Everybody did it. What I associate with it, Jay, is a hell of a lot of fun. We had good times. Um, I, I fortunately never got addicted. I, I, Around the age of 25, I got serious with a woman who's now my wife, and I think a lot of that quote-unquote fun stuff went awry. And, and personally for me, I just don't have an addicted person, addictive personality. I never got addicted to anything good or bad. You know, weightlifting, running, those are good things. Uh, drug use, maybe not. But I don't think we ever talk enough about the pleasure that comes from recreational drugs. I mean, there's a reason so many people do it, is there not? That's such a great point. Uh, yes, and that was the point of my article in in, in uh, Yes Magazine. The, the 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 fallacy here is that we uh, th we think of the ex not only the negative as you perfectly pointed out, Ray, but the extreme negative, right? You know, it, it, it says something that when we talk about drugs, every time someone mentions like uh, you know, let's, let's say heroin, right? Heroin is the big bad wolf on the block right now, even though most heroin now is not actually heroin. It's fentanyl, and that's a whole other thing. But it is the, 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 that's the scary one. That's the one everybody is terrified of. So, again, to, to use the name I said earlier, Carl Hart, who is this uh, researcher and the head of the psychology department at, at Columbia University, he is an open heroin user. And he is a guy who has done the research to show that in his latest studies, the people who will be who will struggle with misuse and, and to be clear here to define a term, misuse is a very wide spectrum. Everything from the kid who binge drinks on the weekends at, in college all the way to your your most e extreme uh, uh, struggling with addiction. Right. The, the, the stereotype that we all think of. That's misuse. So Carl's study has shown that heroin is one of the higher ones. 
uh, but it's still significantly less than what we are taught to believe. You know, dare and just say no would have us believe that one hit of heroin and you're hooked and 99% of people and all this, this stuff. Carl's research has shown that that's flat out not true and that overall with all drugs, roughly 8%, 12% at max will struggle with addiction. Or, I'm sorry, with misuse. An even smaller percentage will struggle with full-blown addiction. This is not ubiquitous. This is not uh, something that everybody is going to experience. And yet we've allowed this narrative to change the way that we view drugs. And to, to point this even clearer, we allow that that sort of straw man to be what we think of with drug use, and yet, at, at, to, to what you said on the way in is true, everybody knows someone who struggled with addiction, but everybody listening, I'm going to assume, because in, at least in my life, I only know two people who don't use any substances, uses something that they don't struggle with, Right. Uh, you know, for me, I struggled with uh, prescription pill addiction and, and some cocaine issues, but I smoke cannabis and I have no problem, right? I have a wonderful relationship with alcohol. I've never, even when I was a kid, a, a, a college kid, I binge drink occasionally, but I never was like, this is my thing. I have to have 10 of these. And so this idea that, oh, everybody's going to struggle removes the self from the equation, right? I mean, Ray, to your point, I'm sure you can knock back a beer and be fine. You know, Trisden, maybe your thing is is harder alcohol. Maybe you like uh, whiskey, right? But we we tend to stop thinking about ourselves and we think of that other person when in reality, we are not the exception, but we are the rule. And so it's really helpful, as I said in this article, for everybody to remember that and to think of themselves, whether your your chosen drug is, you know, martinis, meth or, or marijuana, to remember that you are the rule. You are not the exception to this big, scary drug use. So to stop demonizing the people who do struggle and remember them as as, you know, somebody who's struggling with a health issue the same way that, you know, God forbid one of us gets cancer. That's the way we need to, to see addiction. That's a great point. Yeah, and um, I, I'm going to tell this fact, and it's going to be half true because I can't remember. It's kind of one of those fuzzy uh, sort of memories of a, of a stat. So uh, folks that are listening, you can Google this. But I want to say it was Switzerland made everything legal and safe. So you could do it, basically any drug you wanted. They just taxed, of course, the drugs, and then they used that to fund the taxes to fund centers for folks that struggled that really needed help with their drug addiction so the folks that wanted to do drugs were able to do it in a safe way but folks that you know had real struggle and issues were able to get free help um i always thought that was a pretty cool model um i like the idea of you know being able to you know if people people want to do drugs people are going to do drugs it's like telling 18 year olds not to have sex you know they're gonna have sex so it's it's best to deal with the reality of it and make it safe and and do it in such a way where we can help people. Now I always thought that was cool and I and uh, so if I got maybe the the country wrong that actually did that. <clears throat> but what do you think of something like that? Are you are you pro safe legalization or do you feel like that's too far? You were so close. It's Portugal. <laughs> okay. Um, Portugal. It's called and 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 we even call it in, in my line of work the Portugal model for that reason. 
Um, but here's here's the thing that I think that it, to, to your point that it's even to take this a little bit farther. Uh, and I, I mentioned this briefly in that article that we keep referencing in Yes Magazine, but the U.S. on, let's say, like 80% of policy is the leader of the world. The world looks to us and we help establish policy, right? And with drugs, that used to be the case. And here's the dirty little secret. Over the last 20 years or so, that has changed dramatically. And it's something that our country isn't really willing to talk about. The U.S. is no longer the leader. And in fact, a lot of other countries have left us so far in the dust because they've taken a more human approach, a humanistic approach to this to this issue. And Portugal is the leader on this. They add to your point, Tristan, you, you described it perfectly. They uh, legalized, they decriminalized everything. And so uh, you cannot just walk into a store and buy heroin. That's, that's not, that's unfortunately not how this works. What, what they did do is that the people who struggle with addiction, unlike in the U.S., are not forced into a 12-step style recovery. What happens is they get the option to, you know, try some treatment if they want. They, they, they have all sorts of incredible uh, sort of social services available to them. And for the people who simply either A, aren't interested in going and in, in getting completely off it, or B, cannot do so, because even the, the standard of care, which is medically assisted treatment, is not infallible. It doesn't, it doesn't work for everybody. What they have available to them is the government will give them heroin, the government and, and, and straight heroin. We're not talking fentanyl. We're not talking the, the BS you can get on the street here in Philadelphia. We're talking actual pharmaceutical grade heroin. And for those people, they come into the clinic once, twice a day, whatever their their dosage is from the doctor. They get hooked up to an IV. They, they, they get their heroin and they go about their lives. And what this has shown and what amazing researchers, uh, my favorite right now is a, is a woman named Maya Salovitz, who I think everybody should go read. Uh, she's a New York Times bestselling author, author, actually now writes an opinion piece for the Times, really wonderful researcher. Uh, what she has shown with this is that these sorts of experiences have proven definitively that for a many, many people... The, not everybody, but for many people, the greatest harm is not the drug itself, but is in prohibition. It is in the way that we deal with drug use. And you can see that through many different uh, sort of fingers of this this policy failure, um, both the, the fact that, you know, the average person on the street right now who wants to buy, again, let's use heroin, isn't actually getting heroin because we don't have safe supply like many other countries do, um, or, or the fact that a lot of people who over overdose can be brought back if they're if they do so in a in a, in a uh, if they use in a place that people can actually be there to assist but because it, their use is criminalized here in the u.s um, many choose to do so in back alleys and hidden places and, and then they die when they overdose because nobody's there to save them and the U.S. finally, just la late last year, opened its first overdose prevention site, also known as a safe use site in New York. Uh, and for the U.S., I mean, you would have thought this was a revolutionary new idea. Uh, it was the 126th such site in the entire world because so many other countries have already started doing this. 
So again, you know, the the Portugal is a great example, but overall, I would encourage people to start googling a little bit to see what other countries are doing and they'll start realizing pretty quickly that the US is far from first and is closer to 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 last. Yeah, Jay, and I think one of the things you mentioned in your yes article which was completely freaking fascinating to me because you know, we're sort of and and God knows we all love our country, you know what for, for better or worse, it's obviously not perfect and and does need some work. But, we, you know, we love it. We love America. But the overdose prevention site that you mentioned, uh, Europe has 90 and Canada has 73, which were stats from your article. And we have one. I mean, that to me is, you know, how do we claim to have this, you know, how, do, how does anybody in politics claim that we're trying to work on this when we're just being outdone by, you know, our neighbor to the north, Canada? And by Europe that badly. I mean, like, it's like we don't even care. Like, we pretend like we care and we act like we care. But how do we have one overdose prevention site when these other countries have so many? Yeah, and and sort of to to clarify, when we when we say one overdose prevention site, we mean one legal overdose prevention site, because um, you know there are many incredible activists who are doing this work all over the country in secret, in in, in sort of the underground. Um, but yes, unfortunately, we do only have one. Uh, my city of Philadelphia tried to open the first one a couple years ago. They got sued. Uh, it did not happen. Uh, but New York was able to open. And, and to be clear, they actually have two in New York, but it's owned by one company. So that's why it's counted as one. Um, but yes, it, it is. It is very sad. And, and you know, uh, again, to go to my TED event or TEDx talk, the, the the simple fact is when you when you trace these through lines back. Uh, all of the drug policy in this country, if all the way to the first, very first drug law, which was in 1873 or 76, I always get that confused, in San Francisco, uh, was explicitly on uh, smokable opium, and it says right in the the, the policy um, because that is the, the 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 type preferred by Chinese immigrants. Uh, that was the very first one in this country in 18 late 1800s. You take that through to the early 1900s, to what we think of um, as the modern sort of age of anti-drug use. And again, it, as horrible as racism is, we kind of have to thank our, our, our uh, the people who came before us here for being so overt with their racism because it makes it easier to dispel some of these this BS. You know, anti-cannabis uh, laws were all around uh, Mexican immigrants. Anti-heroin laws were aimed at um, heroin and cocaine were aimed at black Americans. Uh, this is a stat I love to drop on people for something like 70 years. Police in the south, the southern states in the United States used a larger caliber uh, pistol Ever since the first law, or, or, or not, I guess it's not a law policy uh, for that past in the eight in the nineteen teens, because there was a myth going around that black men on cocaine could not be brought down with their normal gun. And this is this is again just out in the open, and we have to thank them for their overt racism. And so these myths, when you hear that, you go, wait a minute, that sounds that sounds familiar. And we are still hearing that myth, but we're now using it for PCP. And so when you see a person get pulled over, unfortunately, you know, a black man is killed by a, in, in a traffic stop. 
all too often you hear this oh toxology reports is found that he had something in his system and you know we all know that that he couldn't be brought down with a taser or all this kind of stuff and there's just no there's no scientific truth to that i i, I you know I, I say this not proudly but as someone who has used pcp uh it does not make you um you know uncontrollable and and and, and you know the hulk uh it makes the, the world around you seem a little mysterious sometimes uh, but it is not when when I was using PCP, I did not go ru running from room to room, tearing things off the wall or tearing my face off. That's just not what this does. So, but the but the fact is that when when you see these news reports, they're kind of banking on the fact that nobody really knows what these drugs do because the average person doesn't know what PCP is and has never met someone who used PCP. So a lot of this stuff has through lines way back in the day. You know, the, the modern war on drugs, which began under Nixon, but really inflamed under Reagan, was all part of the, the quote-unquote Southern strategy. I mean, this was, from the beginning, continues to be a war on people that the United States seems is less desirable. And you can see that in the prison records. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a coincidence that uh, in some areas, as much as 95% of those arrested for drugs are people of color, even though, obviously, they're a much smaller percentage of the population. And uh, studies have continued to show that white people use at equal rates, if not more, than people of color. So uh, it is very dis discouraging when you see that. And again, we are making some changes, but they're just not coming fast enough. But I I'm sure the history also shows, Jay, the... Uh it's just such an easy issue to demagogue, uh, you know. It's it's um, it's so simple yep. to point fingers. There's not a lot of thought that goes beyond the us and them of their users, and 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 we're not. And I think we live with that even through today. I, I mean, and and that's why the work that you do is is really marvelous because it is such an uphill fight, you know, to bring Middle America along to realizing that you know maybe we should have prevention centers and not lockup centers is a hell of a tough battle to fight yeah uh that's a great point thank you for saying that ray i i um i love <laughs> so you are exactly correct and, and it's something that i think needs more uh, awareness and when when richard nixon so nixon starts the war on drugs in 1972 or 73 and it's sort of it is plodding along i mean it's not really it's more of a buzzword than anything until Reagan takes it and runs with it. He loves this. And there was a poll done that showed when 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 Reagan decided that was going to be his number one issue. The year before, only 2% of Americans on this list identified drugs as the biggest problem in the United States. And by the time Reagan's done with it, we're well over the 60% range. I mean, this became... For no other reason than it was an easy political football, the number one issue in America. And then we get, you know, this this sort of moral panic about the, the crack epidemic, which, again, so many researchers have disproven this idea that there ever even was a crack epidemic. Anyway, it, it, it has been easy from the beginning to use this as a way to to fight people. And I will give credit to some incredible journalists one of whom uh, recently passed away, but he um, interviewed John Ehrlichman, Nixon's number one advisor, shortly before his death in the late nineties. And Ehrlichman, you gotta you gotta give him credit for this because he was so brutally honest. The money quote was, he said, "Did we know that drugs weren't the problem? Of course we did, 
But we knew that if we criminal, we, we couldn't criminalize being against the war or black. And if we associated drugs with those communities, we could arrest their leaders and destroy their campaigns. And people would, I'm bastardizing this quote, but essentially people would applaud us for it. And so, again, props to Ehrlichman for on his deathbed saying the quiet part out loud um, and the journalist for getting this quote. But but that is the truth of this fight, is that it has never really been about the drugs. And to this day, it's just easy for people to, to, to be anti-drug and look tough on crime. Uh, but when you remove the person from it, it makes it even easier. And so that's why people like me do what we do to remind people there's a human behind that, right? This is your son. This is your daughter, your brother, sister, whatever the case is. And criminalizing them for their struggle uh, or or being like most people and enjoying a substance uh, takes that the humanity out of that person. So... Uh, that's why I tell my story. That's why I do what I do to try to remind people that there is a face on this, right? I mean, that there are people behind these stats and these tough words and just this dehumanizing language. There's a human there. Man, I never heard that uh, uh, Ehrlichman quote. That is, uh, how cynical is that? Good God. That is an amazing story, Jay. Good Lord. And I was all, uh, uh, very familiar with who Ehrlichman was. Uh, Ehrlichman and Haldeman. These were these were some hardcore cats, man. Yeah. So props to the journalist. His name was Dan Baum. He died two years ago. Uh, wrote some amazing books on drug policy. But again, I I want to be clear. Like you have to be you have to be a little bit appreciative of Ehrlichman there. You know yeah. that he knew he was saying something that was going to be really unpopular. But it's almost like he had a come to Jesus moment at the end of his life and right. said. God, I just got to admit this. Like, yeah, this was completely political. We knew what we were doing. That That's an amazing, that, yeah, to Ray's point, that is just, it's unbelievable. <clears throat> you know, and I think, too, it's easy, you know, those of us who, uh, you know, grow up in this world where you, it, you don't want to believe that the racism is that bad. And you know it exists, and, and you see it, you know, growing up in the South and, and Jay, you've got some Kentucky ties. I'd like to know if you've you've experienced any racism or you've seen any of it. But I mean, you you hate to think that negatively about humanity that that people would make a you know could could be that evil and cruel due to race. Yeah. So I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and um, uh, my hometown. I love it. I, I spent a lot of time in Kentucky from being just around there, living in Philadelphia. Now I spent the last couple of years. Uh, before I, I moved to Philly in 2021, uh, spent the last two years before that living in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, where my wife is from. And we moved because we moved down there in August of 19. And six months later, COVID begins. And three months after that, we in the world witnessed the brutal murder of George Floyd. And the way that the community around us responded to these two, you know, life-changing events was eye-opening and, and really helped us recognize that uh, we did not, my wife and I, who are both, you know, very, uh, we do this work. She also is in sort of um, uh, humanistic approaches to things. And uh, we realized that we could not stay in this community. And I think the most eye-opening thing for me, I was on the board of a they called themselves at least a progressive organization down there. 
and when George Floyd was murdered, uh, I wanted to do an event. Um, it was just a listening session for the community uh, it, it, to help people process and just talk about things in a safe space. And they loved this idea, um, but they stopped me when I wanted to reach out to the local Black Lives Matter chapter. And they said that uh, we will not work with that extremist organization. And I went, oh, boy, do we have different uh, values then. Um, and so I think that there is this inability to or, or there's this, this desire to, to want to see progress at a safe pro uh, pace, which unfortunately is just never fast enough. And we're seeing that in real time now, both on, on race relations, on issues like drug use, um, you know, even health. Uh, now guns, I mean, there's just so many topics where people are okay with progress, and, and thank you for that, I guess, but they want it in a very slow way, and that's just never how progress works. Right. Jay, you speak on on these topics with, with such a degree of, um, of authority. Obviously, this is your passion. Tell us about where we are currently, because you made the point that the media shares some of this blame. They overblow stories. So where are we right now with fentanyl, fentanyl? It's all you hear is fentanyl. Is this at the quote-unquote crisis level, or is or, or what do we or don't we know about current you know drug addiction and, and, and so forth? So, um, sort of two answers to that. Fentanyl has been a problem for almost a decade now, and it, it is... It, it, and, and Jay, if you don't mind, what exactly is fentanyl? Yeah, so fentanyl is a manufactured opioid uh, synthetic. Um, so fentanyl, and, and, and this is something I like to make clear, is that when you see fentanyl in headlines, what you actually need to do is add the word illicit, because fentanyl is in every hospital and every emergency room you've ever been in. In fact, if you, I, I make this joke, if you need to go to get surgery and you tell your doctor you don't want fentanyl, they will laugh at you. I mean, it is a standard procedure to, to for pain medication in, in hospital settings. However, what we're seeing now is that, a, and we have been, like I said, for almost a decade, is that many of our street drugs are cut with fentanyl. And there's there's two reasons they do this. Number one, it's a lot easier to get into the country uh, and to hide, right? I mean, you're talking the, the minuscule amounts of this drug are needed for the same high that a more massive amount of, of something like a, a, a heroin would be needed for. So uh, a dealer who is worried about arrest, uh, instead of carrying around giant things of, of heroin, he could have a couple of bags of fentanyl and he's set. So that's number one. Interesting. And number two is it's almost impossible to get heroin these days because of the, the, the prohibition uh, of, of our enforcement of, of our law enforcement. So if you, you know, you have these people who are struggling with an addiction to opioids, uh, they can't get pain medication anymore because it's so hard to go to your doctor. I mean, even I would struggle because my doctor, it's in my, it's in the system that I used to struggle with addiction. It would be really hard for me to get pain medication these days. And so you have other people who have, who have, are fighting this battle to say that we've swung too hard the opposite direction, you know, long-term uh, pain sufferers who can't even get their medication. Uh, it's, it's a mess. And then on the other side, you know, you have this person who can't get pain medication, they can't get heroin, 
what are they going to do? They, they, they don't want to go through withdrawal because it's just awful. And so they're using fentanyl. So, yes, fentanyl is in everything. However, a good friend of mine works for the health department here in Philadelphia, and they have a spectrometer, which is this awesome tool that allows you to break down the drugs and actually measure everything that's in it. And they set a record the other day uh, with 28 different uh, substances found in one bag of quote-unquote heroin. Um, the actual heroin amount was, I think it was 0.1%. You know, fentanyl was a lot of it. But the newest thing, not even that new, I mean, we're, we're talking four or five years now, but it's finally getting the coverage that it deserves, is tranquilizer. Um, this is an animal tranquilizer, the kind you find in zoos, that is now in all of our street drugs. And what's so scary about this is that a person who is really high off of what they think is heroin or fentanyl, it's not, it's trank, uh, it mimics an overdose. And so you see people like, like this group I work with who are rushing to people's sides to, to give them uh, Narcan and bring them back because they think they're overdosing and they're not. They're just really high off tranquilizer. So it's easy to say, well, this is awful. You know, people need to, to get, to, to, to stop using drugs. But the fact is, most of these people don't have access to treatment because our treatment beds are severely limited. Uh, they they are going to be thrown in jail if they get caught, um, and then they're sent out back on the street, or they're or they're referred to a twelve step program or something. And there's not actual adequate treatment, and so that's why people like myself are calling for safe supply. You know, are if we're not going to fund treatment, we're not going to fund things like mental health sources or resources and uh, housing, which can help a lot of people to not use in an in, in, in unsafe way. We have to do something to keep these people alive, because as we say, you can't get into recovery if you're dead. So it's it's so traumatic. You know, when I'm working in some of these communities and uh, our, our my mayor here in Philadelphia, Jim Kenny, recently authorized a street sweep where they came through this area. They threw everybody's tents away. They arrested everybody. And that next day they were back out on the street, still homeless, still with no resources, except now their house is gone, too. Um, but it's a way for him to look like he's tough on, on crime. So what I would encourage people is if they want an accurate and adequate uh, view on what is actually happening to drug users uh, and, and the homeless populations, you know, unfortunately, our, our sort of uh, front page media places are not doing a great job. Uh, part of it is journalistic uh, laziness, but also part of it is that it's really hard to see outside the box. And I don't really fault a lot of these journalists for just not having the connections. However, there are some places that are doing really good reporting on this. Uh, Vice News, everybody knows Vice. They decided a couple years ago that they were going to change this. They, they very publicly said, look, we haven't been doing a very good job on this. Um, we are going to try to get to the source and actually listen to people who use drugs and the homeless populations and find out what's happening in their lives. Uh, so a couple of times I've been working in this community and Vice reporters have been right there with me. So I got I to gotta applaud them. And... There's an outlet online called Filter Magazine uh, that is specifically about drug use. Uh, they hire a lot of drug users. Uh, the, the founder is a guy who's been on my show. Um, I've worked with a couple of their, their writers, uh, both interviewed them. I've done a project with one of their writers. They do amazing work. 
Uh, it is the place where you are going to hear um, the most honest and sort of unvarnished uh, 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 resource for drug use for these uh, issues that are, are, are plaguing the, the, the homeless population um, and a lot of policy work. It's, it's a really fantastic source, and, and I would encourage everybody to go check out Filter Magazine. Yeah, just a real quick question for you, Jay. Um, how did you get invited to do a TED Talk? That's pretty awesome. So um, I've, I will say this about TED. Uh, for those who don't know, TED stands for Technology, Education, and Design. They are specifically uh, an organization uh, that values learned experience over lived experience. That, that's I mean, I think it's a knock on them, but also that's just who they are. That's that's not it's not a, it's not a negative. They they want people who are you know the learned experts in their field. So I've been a, a, a asked to apply or have applied independently for TED uh, probably about ten times. I made it to the final round four different times, and those three times I didn't get it. Uh, when the list came out of the people who were who were the, the the speakers, every single one of them had learned experience. They were you know PhDs, doctors, all this amazing amazing people. No knock against them, really fantastic people. Uh, but without a single person with learned or with lived experience. And um, this this final time, I happened to know the organizer, and to his credit. He was wanting. He wanted to change that. He said, "I want a person with both. I want a person with uh, learned experience, but also somebody who has lived their topic." And I'm, you know, lucky that that as a guy who um, really cares about this topic and had enough means. I mean, I went to school for psychology. Um, I have spent countless hours getting independent certifications on topics everywhere from drug use to drug policy to uh, first ed, uh, mental health first aid to all sorts of stuff because I care so deeply about this. And when this person wanted that person with learned and lived experience, he reached out and said, you are one of the few people I know with both. Would you be our headline speaker? So um, knowing the person helps a lot. And if you are a person who is, uh, you know, does have lived experience, unfortunately, my recommendation is spend a lot of time, uh, as much as you can, getting the learned experience on top of it, because that is what Ted looks for with their speakers. Well, you obviously represent your positions really, really well, Jay. Uh, let me ask you, to whatever degree we can rank or quantify this stuff, where does America fit in worldwide in terms of drug use do, do we you know where are we so if you are just trying to see of where we are uh, where we rank in terms of the percent of the population that uses substances we're pretty much in the middle we're very average really? you know I, I mean when you think about some of these other countries where it's much more normalized right think of a, a place like france where wine is part of the culture right or or Ireland, where beer is is uh, you know the thing, right? And by the way, I've been to Ireland, and Guinness over there is just the most delicious thing you've ever had. I so agree. If you have the chance, yes, sir. Um, but but what I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that when you think about it that way, or let's say Jamaica, where where cannabis is 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 more of a sacred thing and it's part right. of the culture. So these are these are much more ingrained here. 
Um, we, I mean, we drink beer, we smoke, we, we do all these things, but we're not special in that way. There's nothing that is like uh, uniquely American other than American style lager, but it's not the same thing as it is in other countries. However, if you look at the percent of population that is criminalized for use, the U.S. is not only near the top, we are or at the top, we are leaps and bounds. The U.S. in terms of criminalizing drug users is to the rest of the world what the the percent or, or the the um, deaths by nicotine are to the rest of the uh, the substances on my graph I talked about earlier. Right. We are so far above everybody else that it's almost impossible to see everybody else on the graph with the U.S. That's great. So, and so that's to my point earlier of like, if you think that the U.S. is is leading the world on this, we are, but not the way you think we are. Right. Um. In in, in bad in terms of bad. Uh, outcomes. So um, you have to give it up for some of these other countries. I I, I love. <laughs> I had a guy on my podcast recently who I just admire the hell out of. His name is Garth Mullins. He's he's one of the leaders um, in in terms of uh, advocacy for drug users in Canada, and he made the point in his state of of uh, Vancouver or his city of Vancouver. In the last couple of years, they had two thousand overdoses which is a lot. That's 2,000 more than we should have. Um, but they're fighting for change and they're seeing policy change and they're seeing people being held accountable over 2,000 over a couple of years. To put that in perspective, last year, the U.S. set its record for most overdoses in a year with a, over 100,000 and nothing is changing. So Unbelievable. I, it, it, it's just mind-boggling uh, that that you can see, I mean, before COVID, in fact, I gave, you know, a, a speech not long before COVID where I said uh, at the time when you combined overdose and suicide deaths, uh, we were over 125,000 a year. And I said that if, if you were losing, uh, that's roughly the size of Topeka, Kansas, uh, every year to something that d didn't hide behind stigma, you would see marches in the streets you would see riots demanding change and yet we're we're seeing nothing with with these topics and then of course covid happened and and it kind of put all of that to, to shame but um you know that the fact is is that unfortunately we are a deeply political country and we we politicize literally everything um you know i i, I it is disheartening uh, and it's why we our country has ground to a halt and why change is almost impossible to imagine because every single thing gets politicized and we've mistaken or we've forgotten that an opinion does not equal fact. You know, I have these conversations all the time and people tell me this, this happened recently and it makes me irrationally angry where I gave all these figures and I talked about my work and with the, with people who use drugs and as a person in recovery. And at the end of it, someone went, yeah, you know, I just still think that heroin people who use heroin should be arrested. And I was like, who cares what you think? I, I like you have no basis for that for that opinion. You have no education. You have no connection to this. Why should we care about your opinion? And unfortunately, that is the U.S. in a nutshell. It's great that everybody has a voice, and I love that about this country. But that doesn't mean that everyone's voice is equal. If you have no training, if you have no lived experience, if you're only going off of what you've heard, 
quite frankly, we shouldn't have to care about your opinion on a subject like this where people are dying. Right. And it, it scares me that for some people, that is a controversial thing to say. Yeah, that's got to be very frustrating. Um, Jay, I know we're getting, I don't want to say a little bit short on time here, but I had a, a couple more questions I wanted to ask you. Um, one, and this is just a personal question, and, and I'm going to ask it as though it's a blanket, and, and obviously you can't speak for everybody in recovery, but I've just always been fascinated by it. So just think of this as a dumb guy's question to somebody in recovery. <laughs> You've been in recovery for 12 years. Uh, and, and do you personally, like, do you feel like it's, You've just got it under control? I mean, that's probably a pretty taboo question. Or is it a struggle daily with something like that? I I don't think it's a taboo question. I love that question. Um, You know, I'll say it this way. Uh, 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 The the best analogy I can use is is, uh, I'm parroting this from a a guy who I admired who unfortunately lost his battle with addiction uh, about three months ago by the name of David Poses. And what David was a guy who struggled with uh, 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 unsafe heroin use for a long time. And as David liked to say, when he used heroin, it wasn't, you know, this party drug or it wasn't, you know, to, to whatever. Heroin was filling a hole for him. And at the time, he had been in recovery for about six years. And then something horrible happened. He went back to active use and, and lost his he, he overdosed. But uh his life had changed so significantly that that hole no longer needed to be filled. And that is how I look at my recovery. You know, I am in such a significantly better place. I have a wife who loves me and supports me. Um, You know, a dog that I love. I have safe housing, all of this kind of stuff that is just drastically different than when I was in active use. So is it possible that I could struggle again if, if, you know, God forbid something horrible was to happen to my wife and yada, yada, yada? Of course it's possible. But it's more about your life situation than it is about uh, the drug itself. Um, Now, to be clear, I still avoid prescription pills. Uh, I I don't want to tempt it. I don't want to take that chance. Um, But as I said earlier, I drink safely. I smoke cannabis. You know, I don't have an unhealthy relationship with most substances now. So uh, it's not taboo to me to say that. uh, Is it possible? Yes, but I feel pretty safe. Um, and and to, to quote another person whose work I admire, Morgan Godvin, who works in this community as a person in recovery, she said, I'm not going to trip and fall with a needle in my arm. Uh, I know I can make that choice to stay away from that now. So, um, you know, it, it, it is more of a, a, a life situation than we usually give it credit for. And in that respect, my life is so drastically different than it used to be. Great answer. Jay, and... and- this may be that is a great answer, and this may be something you can also correct me on the um, like you, you corrected me on the other stat earlier. But I had read you talk about filling that hole uh, that sometimes substances and drugs can fill. Yeah, I'd read an article once about um, it was a rat experiment, and rats had access to I want to say heroin, but again, you could correct me. But they would go to it consistently until and they put the same rats. In, in what you would almost call like a rat fun world where they had all these things to do and all these things to run on in these slides 
and then the rats would never go to the drugs. They would always just do the, the, the fun stuff that they could do naturally. And I thought that was so fascinating and kind of a microcosm, right? Like, so people that, you know, have access to probably great doctors and friends and fun, you know, and family, you know, you're probably way less likely to go and do, you know, those types of drugs and, and become addicted. But I thought that was a fascinating experiment. Have you heard of that? And did I get it halfway right? <laughs> You, I, Tristan, I love this, man. I love that you've done your research. You, you're 99% of the way there. Yeah. Uh, what you're talking about is a very famous, uh, it's a very famous study called Rat Park. Um, and, uh, yes, uh, it, it was, it was cocaine. It was not, it was not heroin, but otherwise, yes, you got it exactly right. That, that what this researcher showed is that when put alone, rats will choose the, the, the cocaine water 10 times out of 10, 100 times out of 100, they will become addicted. But when they're put in a rat park, and he made this very clear, by the way, it wasn't just that they had wheels to spin on and good food. It was other rats to have sex with. That was a big part of the research. Um, they chose it 0% of the time. Even the ones that were previously addicted stopped going to the cocaine water. And it was because they didn't need that anymore to make their lives better. They weren't trying to fill a hole. So uh, that's a very famous study, one that I love talking about too. Uh, I, I I've been I've reached out to the, ho the, the the researcher before to try to get an interview. Obviously, he's a very uh, famous guy in this community. Um, but yes, I really do think it it underscores what I'm talking about that uh, it, it is all about life circumstance. That is a big part of it, and in fact. Um, we don't know the full equation for addiction. We know some of the variables and that kind of thing. But they have shown that the number one predicator for uh, someone struggling with addiction, not everybody, obviously, because I don't fit this this explanation, um, but the number one predicator is childhood trauma. And what that is saying to us is that, you know, if, if someone is trying to to, to close that hole or fill that hole and cannot do so. Uh, childhood trauma is a, a doozy, obviously. That is a big hole to try to fill, and drugs are an easy answer. So, um, you know, that, that, that these kinds of studies, again, Rat Park is a great one, uh, are really making uh, this, this work that I do and that people 10 times smarter than me are doing to try to change the narrative and change policy 10 times easier. Jay, that was an hour that flew by, man. You are um, yeah. you are a man who knows this stuff inside and out, Tristan. I think we need to do what we always do and say uh, we we would love to have you back because I, I could think of ten more things <laughs> to ask you about. Um, but we are running short on time, and it was a really really enjoyable uh, 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 podcast because you just put forth a lot of things to think about. Well, it was a pleasure talking to both of you. I appreciate uh, both your, your, your earnest questions, and Tristan, your research was impeccable. So uh, definitely, anytime you want to have me back, I, I would love to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Man, we appreciate it. And, and, and Ray, I, I hate to do this. I know you and I both have day jobs that we've got to get to immediately, but I have two more quick questions I've got to, I've got to ask Jay, uh, hopefully uh, both easy and fast, and then we can get to our clothes oh, sure. and our sponsors. Yeah. Um, uh, Jay, real quick, yeah. for anybody listening, how can we how can we help? Did we lose Jay? Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. So the number one thing that you can yeah, I've got you now. Sorry. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, so the number one thing that you can do is to 
again, as I said in the article and I've said before, is remember that you are the rule, not the exception. So instead of thinking about the the straw man, the the you know stereotype of the addict, you know, quote unquote. Remember that that is really, really rare. Uh, yes, they're all over our news. They're, uh, you know, you'll see some in your town uh, asking for change and that kind of thing. But they're super rare. The average person who uses drugs is you. So remember that, and remember the humanity in the person that you see struggling, whether it's your family member or there's just the person on the street. Uh, if we need to banish the idea of tough love. That came out of a really dangerous place, and numerous researchers and people like myself work really hard to to try to promote the opposite of giving people love, you know, allowing them to recover in a way that is safe for them and 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 doesn't isn't going to kill them. I can tell you countless stories of people who were subjected to quote unquote tough love, who then lost their lives to overdose or to, to, to the you know homelessness that kind of thing. So stop with that. Remember the humanity behind them, and remember that you are the average drug user. Thanks, Jay. And, uh, and yeah, so I think, like Ray said earlier, we're all kind of touched, touched by this. So, yeah, I think anything we can do to bring any positivity to the situation is definitely better. And I wanted to, to get to uh, the fact that you were just blocks away from a mass shooting. And uh, I just found that fascinating. And I don't bring that up as sort of a political issue. I, having listened to your podcast, I feel like you, you do a good job of trying to be fair to both sides in what you discuss. And, and you're sort of not completely one-sided. But, man, what can you tell us about that? And how scary was that? And, and what did you think? You know, that's such a fascinating question because I didn't find out till the next day. Uh, I woke up on this. For those listening, uh, that he's talking about the shooting on South Street in Philadelphia. I was out with my wife and some friends celebrating Pride. We were at a drag show at a, at a gay bar called Taboo, um, which is about six to seven blocks away from where the shooting took place. Uh, we didn't know anything. We had we had as this was happening, we were leaving the bar to head home, and uh, we got on the subway. We went home like a normal day, and woke up the next morning to find out we had been very close to this this shooting. Um, what was, what was really eye-opening to me is immediately, and I got to give credit where credit is due, the typical narrative of, oh, we need more police was not present at this shooting because for anyone who knows South Street, and a lot of the narrative was making this very clear, it is one of the most heavily policed areas in the entire city. Um, you cannot go out in this area without seeing numerous police. Uh, they, they, they are everywhere. And so I appreciated the people who immediately said, well, this one does not fit that narrative. Um, this is not a we need more police issue. They are everywhere in this area. So um, it was scary finding out the next morning. Uh, it was infuriating. Um because this was an area where, you know, we were all out there celebrating pride and trying to be just in in a loving environment. And to find out that this was shattered for so many people the next morning was was um, it hurt. It, it was really hard to find that out. And, and it was sort of like a, a backwards wave of trauma, knowing knowing how close we had been to this. So, um, yeah, it, it really it really was upsetting. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that experience. And it, it's just such a, you know, it's one of those things that is so prevalent now that, you know, it's, you know, it's becoming almost like, like drug use where everybody knows somebody now that either, you know, is 
sort of has a story or has a cousin or you know that, that's sort of affected by this so yeah it's scary stuff man glad uh you and, and, and your family and friends are, are okay from that and uh yeah man be be safe i think now none of us go uh to any event with a lot of people without sort of at least once or twice thinking oh man you know some crazy person could really show up right now so it's it's a weird time to be alive and hopefully hopefully we find a way to to neutralize some of this in the future um, and with well, that, to Ray, that I point, can imagine a better segue into our comedy. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Jay. No, just to put a cherry on top of that, on what was so ser- scary was as we left the house, my wife paused and said, you know what? Uh, it's almost impossible to go out right now and not at least for a second fear that there may be a shooting. And lo and behold, there was the next that while we were out. So, yes, Tristan, to your point, it is almost uh, everybody now is connected in some way. And my wife is not a prophet. She just is. That's the data. Uh, and, and it came true for us that night. And luckily, we were okay. Right. Wow. Yeah, thank goodness. So, Ray, uh, we should mention our sponsors. we got to thank our buddy Aaron at Berea Pond. Aaron, thank you so much for being a part of the show. And, and you know, even when you're not on the show, it's kind of like you're on the show because we sort of always talk about you and, and bring up conversations and stuff. So we definitely want to appreciate you uh, and what you guys do at Berea Pond in the old IGA and, as uh, Dave said last week, in the old Superior Grocery Building. So uh, you guys have all the, the cool stuff of a – basically a furniture superstore now with all the closeouts all the pallet sales all the great stuff pawn you know your normal pawn fair um if you're in berea and you haven't been to berea pawn like what are you doing with your life you've really got to go see our buddy aaron and robin like it's uh it's a phenomenal store and uh that's 107 clay drive and that is just across from Near New Auto. Or check them out, buckshotandled.com, uh, if you're not in the area. So uh, check out our friends. And, uh, Ray, would you like to talk about Bad Wolf Gaming? Sure. Dave, uh, uh, Daniel, Nasa, and um, Dustin over at Bad Wolf, Game, Bad Wolf Gaming. Uh, lots of games and nerd stuff, as Dan proudly says. Um, 7-Eleven Chestnut Street, really cool store. They're they're they've just opened six months and um, well actually what's the uh, what is their website Tristan the website for Bad Wolf is it as generic as Bad Wolf Gaming you know what let's go with that <laughs> I don't see it on my my crib notes here but I believe it is I think yeah. that's right I'll ch- yeah. I, I will check that should I, should I, should I well ask and I bet if here. somebody types in badwolfgaming.com yeah, we'll, we'll I bet it will either take them there or give them the link so yeah it should be findable from that I would bet yeah. So yeah, so. Uh, but uh, Jay, thank you so much, man. Yeah, absolutely, and I think Jay. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, we'll have you back, man. It was it was great. Thanks for listening to Extreme Common Sense with Trisden and Ray. We hope you had fun and look forward to taking on another topic next week. <laughs>